you're listening to the good code podcast and i'm your host sanket in this podcast we talk to experienced developers about the art and science of writing good code and everything around building and maintaining software good code podcast is supported by deepsource which is an automated code review tool that helps developers write better code check it out at deepsource.io This is episode number 5 of Good Code podcast and today we have Badri Rajshekar with us. Badri has spent almost 20 years building software now. He started his career working at companies like Microsoft and then went on to become the CTO of Talkbox in 2014 where he led the core WebRTC based streaming video cloud platform. He's now the founder and CEO of Jam, a video collaboration app that helps you work better with your teammates remotely. Welcome to the podcast Badri. Thanks so much Sanket. I'm super excited to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me uh here. Great. So I want to start off with talking about code reviews and processes and how they have evolved over the years in your experience in working at many companies and almost 20 years. What mm-hmm. has been the highlight you think in the way that developers build software and how has that changed over the past few years? Oh my god that's a super interesting and tough question i think you're sort of dating me by going back into my background when i first started just to give you an overview way back uh, when at microsoft we were writing a lot of c code in the operating system and fundamentally you know there's a lot of typed languages strongly typed languages where compilers would catch a bunch of issues up front there was a lot of stringent static code analysis sort of code sanity and to some degree i almost feel with the evolution of much more loosely typed or untyped languages it's almost become even more important to have really good coding hygiene and discipline only because the opportunities to write really bad code or sort of spaghetti code or sort of extremely convoluted copy and paste has just exponentially blown up right it's much easier to write messy code in javascript than in C and that's just the nature of the the beast. And so to some degree I almost feel like it's sort of the inverse paradigm where at, in in today's modern landscape where you're building a bunch of microservices you're using a plethora of tools and technologies to actually write code and develop components it becomes extremely important to ha- have this process and structure and almost this mentality and culture around code hygiene discipline and code reviews right and obviously you can solve some of those with like static analyzer tools and you know just documentation and process but i think in general it's got to be in this dna of companies to have really good code hygiene right right and when you see companies today when you see engineering teams today as compared to engineering teams long back like say 10 years back mm-hmm. where do you see how has this changed as in do you think today there is more automation in the stack there is more impetus on code reviews or do you think it has decreased from what it used to be say 10 years back I think it's definitely gotten better today from an automation point of view but uh, let me give you an anecdotal example right when I first joined Microsoft I still remember this very clearly we were all sitting in an office one day and somebody broke the windows build and the build takes you know there are thousands of people working on that code base and if you break the build before it gets integrated into one of these mainline branches you have hundreds of developers waiting on you 
right? Because the right. boat is broken and they can't now sort of merge upstream. And so literally, I remember like an executive coming into one of our offices with a with a baseball bat. And this was like one week in, into into work. And he, he basically stormed into the office and said, who broke the boat, <laughs> right? <And laughs> it was kind of a big deal to break the boat, right? Like back in the day. And I don't think it is as much anymore because you have the concept of nightlies and very fast continuous integration sort of branches where, you know, it's okay to to break the bill in some of these branches. And so to some degree, I would almost say because the speed of deployment has become so fast and it's not like, you know, we've even gone away from weekly sprints to even daily sprints to now sort of continuous deployment where you're deploying multiple times a day, it's much more easier to sort of correct for mistakes. But what that also means is that you need to have this very strong infrastructure around automation and you need to have this culture around good code sanity because just as it is easier to fix, it's also easier to break, if you know what I'm saying, right? So it's just as possible for organizations in this era of continuous delivery to ship a lot of buggy code if you just don't have the infrastructure and ethos around code uh, quality sort of built from the get-go. Whereas 20 years ago, let's say you were shipping software and CDs once in six months, you, you have a lot more leeway to sort of correct for errors, right? So I almost think uh, continuous deployment is sort of amazing because you get this instant feedback and you can correct and you can iterate really fast and get feedback loops. But it's also equally important for you to be structured around automation testing because it's just as easy to ship really bad code and have this really buggy experience for your customers. Right, absolutely. And... So how does someone think systematically about automation? I mean, it's easier said than done. And in small teams, especially, it's easy because there are a handful of developers. But when you say you're working at a company like Microsoft and there are hundreds and thousands of developers, how do you think about code quality or how do you think about automation in code quality systematically? What kind of processes or what kind of documentation or what kind of tooling do you think you can do or in terms of building things from scratch if you don't have anything in place? I think it just starts from the basics. And I think it's sort of independent of whether you're a very large company or you're a very small company. I think it goes into the fundamental basics of each developer or a small development team being like very structured, right? Here's Here's a very simple example, like, you know, start investing in writing you know, good, high-quality unit testing from the get-go. Have a strong process around all of your basic unit tests and integration tests have to pass before a pull request gets merged in. It's it's very easy when you're in a fast-paced startup or you're moving really fast to say, hey, yeah, I submitted the pull request. You know, a couple of tests are broken, whatever. I'm just going to merge it in. I'll talk to somebody later on, right? It's very easy to fall into that trap. And we have all done it, and I'm guilty of it too. <laughs> but I think it starts there, right? And you need to get disciplined about, okay, either the tests have to pass, or if they're not passing, you've got to fix the test. You can't have like this low-quality integration test that, you know, you're like, oh, okay, sometimes they pass, sometimes they don't pass. It's kind of sporadic. Let's, let's still check it in, right? So I think oh, that's just a very simple example to say that a lot of that needs to start from the get-go. Right? right, And it's very easy to ignore it when you're moving fast to say, okay, that's the boring stuff. We'll deal with it later. Or even worse, you know, think of it as tech debt, right? And say, okay, it's yeah. tech debt. And at some point I'm going to go fix it. 
It's actually not tech debt. Tech debt, I think, should be things that happen unintentionally for the most part. Tech debt shouldn't be sort of an excuse to be sloppy with writing code, right? And I think the very concept of tech debt these days, uh, at least in a lot of games, is just like an excuse to say, hey, I'm not going to write a unit test right now, or I'm going to be a little bit sloppy. I'll deal with it later, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of teams, especially smaller teams, and especially inexperienced people, like people who are doing it for the first time or have not had a lot of experience in building software, I think they kind of tend to make this, have this assumption that, hey, we can ship this thing fast without writing any tests and then, okay, we'll do this later. But people who have some experience in building software for production, they know that, hey, even if it is almost throwaway, we should have some sanity. Right. right. But the flip side of that is in, in today's world, everything is all out in the open. Thanks to GitHub and all of these sort of social coding experiences, there are thousands and thousands of like open source projects of people are building very complex software, right? So to some degree, it's also a much richer environment to learn from because you can go and look at, okay, how does Mozilla do it? Yeah. You know, what's their process yeah. look like? Or how does this open source project do it? So I almost feel like, you know, there's also this amazing opportunity for you to learn the very best in terms of best practices, in terms of what works from this variety of sort of open source projects, documentation, all of that that exists that frankly didn't exist 25 years ago. You didn't know how most companies did it unless you had friends working in those companies, right? Like today, it's much better to try and figure out, you know, how to do these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only, I think the only blocker to that is your own willingness to actually <laughs> improve right. your code. Yeah. So switching tracks a little bit, and I want to talk about this because we have been talking about teams of all size and, and the way that you mentioned that this has to be from the get go. But a lot of teams find themselves in a place where they have not done that. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of teams did not put any code quality tooling or did not focus on, you know, code review practices or documentation early on. And then they find themselves that, hey, now we are 50 developers. Yep. And now they find themselves in a spot where, hey, okay, now things are going haywire. So what is your advice for someone like that who is in that place that, hey, okay, now it's not the get go for now. What What do I do now? No, that's a fantastic question. It happens to all of us at some point, and it's a very common problem, right? Like literally two weeks ago, I was talking to the CTO of a very fast-growing startup, and they were in that exact same position, right? Like they were like, they were growing really fast, and they had all these features they had built very quickly and taken on a lot of uh, tech debt. But at the same time, because they have all these customers and they're in a fast-growing business, they can't afford to slow down. And so you're caught between the devil and the deep sea in terms of, okay, you have all these business requirements where, you know, you want to ship these features and satisfy these customers. At the same time, you are also moving really incredibly fast and sort of accumulate, making the problem even worse, right? Like, you know, taking on more and more tech debt and then you have more pressure and then eventually you just end up in this firefighting world, right? So I would almost say it's super important in those cases for all Firstly, to have like buy-in, right? It's super important to talk to your technology leadership and leadership of the company to sort of make them understand that sometimes writing good quality code and taking the time to fix things actually helps you move faster. It's not like you're slowing down. You're actually slowing down so that you can move 10 times faster in a a couple of months, right? The the first thing I would say is to get sort of organizational buy-in. And the second thing I would do 
and I would encourage people to think about is not try and solve this in one big sort of blob. A lot of people try and say, okay, you know what, we're going to stop everything and I'm going to go and refactor my code base and write documentation and blah, blah, blah. A lot of those things don't work, right? So I would almost encourage people to think of it in terms of, okay, the, the problem is how do I go and solve tech debt and also introduce that into the DNA of the company and the way, one way to do that is to have these quality sprints. Let's say you are shipping every week, designate every third sprint as a quality sprint, right? Like you're, you know, every two, three sprints, you're going to do regular feature development, but the third sprint, maybe one sprint a month, if you're doing like four sprints a month, is going to be a quality sprint, right? And then you start saying, what's the biggest set of items, which I, what's the big bang for the buck projects in terms of tech debt? I can attack it scope it into that quality sprints and then start incrementally evolving, right? That way you're still making progress towards your product roadmap, but you're setting aside a small portion of time every X sprints to focus on tech debt and 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 that eventually makes the team go into forward progress mode. But more importantly, I think it also inculcates this DNA that, you know, every now and then you've got to spend time thinking about quality and, and just general code hygiene, right? And I have done that personally with a lot of teams. And I think that's sort of a good sort of middle of the road path to try and sort of attack that problem. Yeah, that's great advice. I like the concept of quality sprints, especially for uh, teams who have a lot of bad code piled up and bad code and, and bad coding practices. But talking about the DNA, I think designating sprints is one thing, but <laughs> I think for it to be more sustainable, you probably would need to actually get everyone to be in that mindset yep. that, hey, it's not just about shipping code faster. It's also about doing things the right way. So what would be your advice there? I mean, how do you bring in that cultural thing for, say, new developers who join or, say, for existing developers in your team who have been there for quite some time, but, you know, they never understood or they never took this seriously because it didn't trickle down from the top. So how would you approach that? Uh, that's related to my previous answer. And uh, let me try and unpack uh, what I mean here, right? So I'm going to say something which is sort of very controversial in the development world, right? Like I personally don't like the, the concept of QA teams or quality teams or quality engineering teams or site reliability engineering, sorry. I, I, I personally don't like a lot of those things because that essentially is an organizational signal that quality is somebody else's problem. You know, if the site goes down, don't worry about it. The SRE guys will jump on it. Like, you know, I'm going to write a bunch of code and throw it over the fence to the QA team. The QA team is going to like test it out, right? While you can have all of those things, having those as separate sort of teams makes it somebody else's problem, right? It exacerbates this problem of not everybody's thinking about quality, which is why I think the QA or SRE, all of those teams have to be deeply integrated in the product engineering teams themselves or shouldn't, in my opinion, exist as sort of independent functions off on the side, right? You've got to get the whole team and the leadership, more importantly, the technology leadership should be pushing this vision that it's super important for us to focus on quality, reliability, and performance. And it's not just code quality, right? I think it's reliability, it's performance, it's DevOps. There's a whole bunch of things around the feature itself and how the feature performs, which is super important. And I think that's why I, I feel like the quality sprint is sort of the first step because it yeah. ties the entire team together, right? To say, okay, 
this week, everybody's going to be thinking about it, right? And if you have nothing to think about, like, let's figure out how to write better documentation. Let's go and clean up those deployment scripts. Let's go and write some monitoring dashboards, right? Like, let's go and clean up the page of duty alerts and eliminate yeah. the false positives, right? There's a lot of thing you can, you, things you could do. And I think it's super important to get everybody into that process, right? And not necessarily just quality sprints. You can have like a bug bash. You could have like a hackathon that's centered around reliability and performance. But I think the key thing is to get that into the DNA of everybody in the engineering team so that it's not somebody else's problem, right? And all of us as engineers like to write code and develop features and we find everything else boring. So I think leaders also have to sort of make it fun, right? Like you've got to, you know, it's got to be an interesting problem to solve. And I, I, I think that's how you inculcate it. And I genuinely think things like performance, things like reliability are extremely interesting problems to solve, right? It's just that people don't pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. In the in in when you're when you're writing a feature, developing it, especially in small teams. Yeah, and I think it has to be deliberate. Things like performance or security or you know code quality in general, but especially say performance and security. I think if you don't, if you're not focusing on performance, you would never find performance bugs. Right, the same way as security. The other thing here is this is from my own experience. Like a lot of security problems do not start off as security problems, right? right? Like a lot yeah. of anti-patterns actually become security vulnerabilities depending on the context. Right? You're right. Security is a particularly hard problem, right? Like it's, it's yeah. a, it, it requires a completely different mindset. But performance, you know, it starts with something as simple as what, what are you measuring, yeah. right? Do you even know how the software is performing? Do we even know what the bottlenecks are? And I think it starts with being intentional and deliberate about analytics, right? Like that's sort of the mm. first step. Only if you had a clear view of, as an example, the let's say the average connection time, can you then go and say we want to we want to shave shave off fifty percent from the connection time, or we ship this release and it's basically made the connection times three times as worse, right? And I think. Yeah. Too many teams just come and say, okay, let's make this higher performance or we're going to have this performance gate or in the release criteria, we're going to add a performance section. I think all of those sound like really amazing in theory and paper, but they don't work, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I think it's really important to sort of be measure a few important things, but then to your point, you have to be deliberate about, okay, what do we measure? Yeah. Because it's also just as easy to measure billions of things and then build this data analytics monstrosity which has got gigabytes of data and then you don't know what to solve right so i think to your point i think it's it's more important to be deliberate but it's important to be deliberate about the meta questions first i think we should rename this podcast as hot takes by badri (laughs) (laughs) yeah Talking about different team sizes and talking about complexity here. So at TalkBox, you built some really complex software, WebRTC-based clouds, video streaming, where you know performance, again, would be a very big concern. Writing performance code would be a very big concern. So how did you put down practices in an environment like that? Like when you're building TalkBox and you know, when building teams and building software there, what were the prime considerations about quality of the software that you're shipping? Or... Were there any principles in processes that you followed uh, that helped you deliver 
what you were wanting to deliver, like the goals of performance or whatever that might be? Yeah, we we did a couple of things and they're, they're fairly logical and easy things to do, but it's just, you know, to your earlier point, a lot of people don't pay attention to it, right? For us, even very early on when we started writing out the platform, because it's a very complex real-time streaming platform, take, take any large distributed system and the complexity becomes 10, 10x when it's an RTC yeah. platform because you are so subject to like latency issues, right? Like if you and I are having an audio conversation and, and, and we have like an additional 500 milliseconds of latency, it's the conversation become unusable, right? So 500 milliseconds is kind of a big deal in, in, in real-time communication. So from the get-go, just because of the fact that we were building a product that is so sensitive to performance and latency and reliability, we invested a lot of time in actually building out a pretty robust analytics infrastructure that we could measure all, all parts of the system in terms of pump, collect a lot of analytics metrics, and then be able to quickly process them and arrive at, at some reports and analysis, right? And that's not just an engineering problem in terms of like, okay, how do we how do we sort of write a simple instrumentation framework which anybody in the team can use to instrument? So people are not using their own little systems. There's one unified framework for instrumenting anything across the system, whether it's platform health or billing or analytics, any of that data, right? And then it's also building the appropriate analytics infrastructure team to be able to quickly parse that information out and sort of look at that data. So the first thing was we, we, we set up a system where you could easily measure things. And then we made it fun, even culturally. I remember like one of the first projects we did was this thing called Load Time Llama, which is literally the stuffed llama. Like, I don't think it's a llama. Maybe it's an alpaca, but maybe it's a llama. But we used to call it Load Time Llama, which would literally measure the load times of the library, right? Like when we were loading this library and like initializing it, how long does it take? And every week, and it'd be like annoying as hell, but this load time llama would show up in these all hands meetings and then say, you know, this week it's like really sad because the load times are like 2x what it used to be. It was kind of fun and like silly, but that also contributed to sort of the ethos of then people are started thinking about load time llama and whether load time llama would be happy or sad this week in the all hands meetings, right? Like, so it's stuff like that we did, which sort of, get people sort of focusing and paying attention to this problem, right? If you actually think about it, if you have a group of really smart engineers, it's not about telling the engineers what to do or figuring out, you know, how to solve the problem. It's really about sort of prioritizing what problems need to be fixed first. Yeah. And I think that's what we tried to do is to say, okay, clearly identifying, you know, what areas of the system needed paying attention to, and then figuring out sort of an infrastructure, supporting infrastructure where you could quickly measure and analyze how it does, right? And I think those two things sort of helped. Like here's another hot take. I, I always <laughs> used to tell you know people in my team that if you have sufficiently intelligent people looking at a problem and given enough information, they always converge at approximately the same solution. So hmm. I think it's about providing the right information to a group of smart people and then they will figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like that. So essentially what you are saying is, first, it's important to have your metadata 
kind of put together in place. Like right. you need to know what you are measuring for, what are your key metrics that you want to optimize for. Like, right. And say, for example, a team who's starting out in say code quality tooling or any kind of automation or performance optimization or whatever, I think it's worth the time for them to first sit down and define what are the primary things that they want to optimize for and not just randomly start optimizing for everything under the sun. Correct, right. correct, correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, that's exactly right because you have like a finite amount of like resources and you have a finite amount of time and you don't want to be optimizing non problems, right? Like, there are a lot of very fun problems yeah. to optimize, which you know, it's like super interesting to do, but they're probably like worthless for the business. And you don't want to go down that rabbit, that, that rabbit hole either, right? And moving on to your current company, and again, you're kind of doing the same challenges, difficult challenges that you're solving. Again, real-time communication, video especially. Mm -hmm. And it's even more important today because, you know, practically everyone is on video. So when you started the company, when you started Jam and you started hiring developers, coming back from all the experiences that you've had, what are your engineering workflows like quick overview of the prime things that you do to make sure you're writing good code yeah in in our case we got a little bit lucky because two two of my uh, co-founders are both people i worked with in the past in telefonica and talkbox and so to some degree the founding team at jam came with a lot of the same shared experiences from an engineering point of view so i think that certainly helped us sort of get going but we we are pretty stringent about like I mean our, our engineering process are very straightforward like a small uh, sort of very young company we use basically GitHub all of our pull requests we, we invested a lot of time writing a bunch of like automation and every pull request has to triggers a bunch of like automation tests and all of those automation tests have to be passed before the pull request can be merged and we also mandate that it has at least one additional code reviewer who's got to approve the pr before it gets merged in we are very stringent about those processes right like even though we work in very disparate time zones oftentimes there'll be this pull request open you pass all the tests but then it still doesn't have that one other reviewer who's approved it and so people are waiting and saying hey like can you please review my pr and approve it and so I think even though those seem a little bit annoying, we are very disciplined about doing those things, right? We also have sort of a continuous deployment environment into a nightly branch, but any PR that needs to be merged into our feature development branch has to be first, has to pass all the integration tests and has to be reviewed by one additional sort of code reviewer. But once that's merged in, a lot of those get also deployed into a nightly branch where we and that's basically our staging where we can go and test out stuff and staging every night as well, right? Again, we take sort of the nightly build breaks very seriously. If anything is broken and nightly, we sort of make a big deal about it. And I think that's sort of the loose process we follow. We've also, again, sort of spent a lot of time in analytics, but I think this time we haven't done it as well as we did with Talkbox. We are now in the process of like having collected too much data. You know, we are drowning in a lot of like analytics, right? So we're trying to now pair back and say, okay, yeah, sure. We collect an enormous amount of data given how small of a company we are, but we need to sort of go back into the the meta fundamentals, right? And I always give the example of like, I mean, not that any of, I don't know if there are any pilots out there, but if you're, if you're flying an airplane, you know, you want to look at a couple of three indicators, right? airspeed, altimeter, you know, a, a few dials. 
And when one of those things are wrong, then you go and delve into some of those deeper data in terms of mm. what's going wrong, right? But what's your four-level dashboard? What's your four-metric okay. dashboard, right? What's the four things? And that's where we are in the process of defining some of those things. Right. right. That, that's actually very great advice. So essentially what we are saying is, Instead of, again, coming back to our earlier point about spending time on metadata, spending time time on figuring out what matters, we first need to define what are the primary three or four key metrics that are super important. Yep. So you're saying that if all those three or four things are fine, you probably don't have to worry too much. And only if one of those things are breaking is when you dig deeper and figure out, okay, what are the other things down the line which are broken? Correct. And I think it's it's easy to collect a lot of data and like, sort of geek out on like graphs and like create like hundreds of dashboards but the problem is then it's causality right like you want to eventually say a combination of a b and c is what caused some issue so oftentimes it's easier to arrive at causality if you drill down from a top level metric to say okay connection times are bad okay why are connection times bad okay let's go in here and say is the websocket connection time bad is some other signaling connection bad is some media connection bad okay got it signaling connections bad okay which data center is it often then you go to a particular machine within the data center well what's happening there right it's it's much easier to figure out these causal patterns if you start with the top level and drill down rather than looking at a sea of graphs and somehow trying to sort of figure out piece you know once an archaeology experiment right like where you're trying to piece together something from the bones and the skeletons mm-hmm. versus the other is a little bit more structured sort of okay i'm going to start from the top level and i i'm going to dig uh, you know I'm, I'm going to drill down step by step great that's actually very good advice especially for people who are uh, looking to get into you know automating their quality tooling or automating if they're not automated their processes before. The final point that I want to touch on is building complex architecture, building complex software. And you have had your fair share of building complex software. So what are the top advice, like top two or three points uh, that you want to give to developers who are building like senior software engineers or junior engineers who are progressing into becoming seniors, who are working on difficult problems? What would be your advice in thinking about software design or uh, architecture design in general? I have exactly two pieces of advice here. Both of it are sort of based on my own sort of blood, sweat, and tears through building large distributed systems. The first is, I would say, keep it extremely simple. It's the, it's the KISS principle, right? Like you got to keep it, keep, you got to keep it simple. And there's a real reason in large complex systems to keep it as simple as possible because A, simple architectures are much easier to scale than very complex architectures. And B, and this is an even more important point, which I, I think it's important to pay attention to, which is simple architectures are easy to reason about. So at scale, if something bad happens, you have a production outage or something bad happens, simple architectures let you resolve those problems faster because they're easy to reason about. The behavior of that system is easier to reason about rather than having this hyper-complex architecture which is a super complicated state machine. And who knows, there are like Mm. 6,000 different states you have to model. And it could be in any one of those 6,000 states and you have to figure out, you know, what went wrong, right? It's it's super important to keep it simple from that point of view, right? So I would say you keep it simple is, is 
very important principle from my point of view. The other thing I would say is, and this is sort of related to the previous point, avoid premature optimization. I think a lot of us fall into that trap, especially the more senior of an engineer you are, which is that you start thinking about all kinds of hypothetical scenarios and say, I'm going to design for the 100x case and I'm going to design for this edge case and I'm going to design for that edge case. The problem, I think, with that approach, premature optimization, is oftentimes the problems you think will be the problems at scale are not the problems at scale. So it's very hard to figure out what the bottlenecks are prematurely at 100x because a lot of things become counterintuitive at scale. And and so prematurely optimizing it, you could be spending a lot of time building some architecture and solving a problem, which actually might not be the most important problem to solve if you truly hit 100x. And so I, I... Again, this is kind of a counterintuitive advice to what most people would say, but my worldview is that, you know, you shouldn't spend a lot of time in premature optimizations only because you might not fully understand which problems are important and need to be solved at scale up front. I think that's timeless advice. Keep it simple and do not optimize prematurely, just like Alan K said. (laughs) Thanks a lot for your time. It was great talking to you. And to our listeners, I'll see you in the next episode.